0: my pleasure to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Michael Kao, private investor, former hedge fund manager, and he brought his friend, a fantastic investor, Alexander Stahill, founder and chief investment officer of Burgraben Holding. Gentlemen, fantastic to have you back. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Thank you, Jack. Nice to be here.
1: Thank you, Jack.
0: So, Michael, Alex is a True expert in the world of commodities and specifically oil. We're going to be getting really in the weeds on oil in just a moment. Both of you gentlemen have been quite bearish, and that call has uh, uh, turned out uh, so so far. I want to know if you're still as bearish as you were. But just to start us off on macro, Michael, where are you? You know, you're on Twitter at Urban Cowboy. You've got you've got a Substack, and I see you've been talking a lot about uh, saying that the U.S. dollar wrecking ball is very uh, ev- visible, and you're talking about this a CNY oil doom loop. So what does the Chinese yuan and oil have to do with each other? And in what way is there kind of a a doom loop that you're seeing? What is a doom loop?
1: Uh, A doom loop is really, it's a positively reinforcing feedback loop, right? And so since March, um, during when when the whole regional banking crisis was brewing, I wrote a substack and I said, look, I think I think the regional banking worry ultimately is going to be a provincial thing. I think the the bigger picture that's going to be depressive and deflationary in the short term on the macro side is going to be uh, China uh, China devaluing its currency. Um, and I I go back to this uh, I love Greek mythology as you can probably tell. So so I I go back to this uh, this. Uh, Homer's Odysseus myth of Odysseus trying to steer that straight between the Scylla and the Charybdis. And I said, look, if the PBOC is Odysseus trying to steer that straight, on the one side, you've got the Scylla monster, which I will label the weak CNY. And on the other side, you've got the Charybdis monster, which I will label the uh, the strong CNY. So so the the conundrum facing the PBOC is that, well um back when oil prices were much higher right um a weak cny would have been uh very bad for china in terms of importing inflation because you know oil is the most important commodity in the world and it happens to be u.s dollar denominated right so so there was a big risk of uh china getting walloped by a double whammy which it did in uh in 2021 and 2022 where oil was on a tear and the dollar was on a tear right okay so on the other side the Charybdis monster is a strong cny now now that we know both alex and i have had independently come to this conclusion that this china reopening trade was going to be likely a dud back in the end of uh q4 and and the the issue with china if you, if you think about The COVID responses in the US and China, they couldn't, they really could not have been more different. Because um, last week I tweeted out something I said, look, I think where most people, where a lot of people went wrong with evaluating the China reopening trade was to view it through a US lens. Because in the US and in the West, I would say generally, right? But US specifically uh, offered a ton of monetary but also fiscal support to cushion the consumer. The consumer is what our stimulus was geared towards. But if you look at China, China's response was totally different. They had zero COVID policy and and they had very, very little consumer support. And so and so coming out of this, they had a much longer COVID lockdown period than the West right, and then the US, and they're not offering real consumer support. So you have to think about what's in the mind of the Chinese consumer. There is no Chinese consumer. They're not spending. They're not tra- they're not really traveling. Like the anecdotes that you hear, I think, tend to be, you know the, the really, really well off. But you know, you're, you're definitely not seeing it in the data as as Alex will will corroborate. But um, my point is that now that commodity prices have come down, the specter of importing dollar-based commodity price inflation is no longer such a scary monster. So all things being equal, when China has no uh, internal consumer support for its economy and they're 100% reliant on export growth, they need to devalue the CNY. And devaluing the CNY, all things equal, again, um, uh, lowers – uh, it just lowers demand for oil as well as uh, be- because it, it is still a dollar-based uh, commodity, right? So they're really stuck. I mean, they need to stimulate, but they, but in order to break this doom loop, to, to me two things have to happen. One, one is their their stimulus has, <clears throat> to, has to be a bazooka. I, I've been calling this Chinese stimulus equivalent to like a 22 caliber plinker as opposed to a bazooka. It, it ain't going to do the job. And the other thing is that they're also fighting the Fed, the, the Fed and the ECB. The Fed and ECB, for all intents and purposes, are not finished with their inflation fight. So um, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I think uh, Drucken, there was a Druckenmiller interview where he talked about how this Chinese stimulus would lead potentially lead to a sugar high I guess in in risk assets, presumably, and I and I kind of weighed in and I said, well, the only dubious part that I I think about the sugar high is that until the Fed and the ECB actually pivot and we have synchronization of central bank easing, um, the only sugar high we're going to see is in dollar yuan exchange rate, and that's going to be deflationary in the short term. So I've said a lot.
0: Yeah. Thanks for that, Michael. And so, yeah, the PBOC is the Chinese Central Bank, the People's Bank of China. Chinese Yuan is the CNY you were referring to. So, a strong Chinese Yuan is the charybdis. A weak Chinese Yuan is a Scylla. And the Chinese Yuan has gone from a six uh, a 680 to the dollar to 720 uh, just from January. So, we have seen the, the Chinese just Yuan. Just from March, actually. weaken. Yeah, just, just that's a, it's a good point. So, Michael, thanks for that on the macro. Alex, now let's zoom in on to the oil market. As I said, both you and Michael started to get bearish about a year ago, uh, which is actually a good time to be bearish because the price of oil was $120. Uh, now it's $73 on Brent. Why were you bearish? You, you've got some fantastic charts and we'll get even more you know, in, in de- greater detail later on. But first, just start us off sort of uh, 10,000 foot view. Why were you bearish? And also, why were you not necessarily a believer that the Chinese reopening would stimulate oil demand?
2: Thanks, Jack. I think the main reason that both Michael and I quickly concluded, and that comes a little bit to us having the gray hair that we discussed before. And no hair. Just every single time when oil goes above 100, demand suffers. Now, the only period it didn't for a while, but but it wasn't an easy ride either. It was in this, um, I call it the post-OPEC era, where we, after 2008, went above 100 and stayed there. But we had a very different oil market then because on what we call in the industry, the long cycle project, it was really an empty pipeline. So meaning those projects that are mostly coming out of offshore oil, you know, in the North Sea, or in all these difficult jurisdictions that aren't easy to find oil, and let alone develop oil, and 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 since then we added the U.S. shale part, which is a completely different type oil when it comes to uh, uh, supply, and um. So uh, so now we are again back in July where, where for. for when you ask the question, uh, we are back above 100. But if you think about it, and we were as high as 120 or even 125. But if you think about it, it was very narrative driven at that point. Um, probably the, the more natural um, uh, demand and supply balance or the barrel counting part probably justified 90 to 100. At that specific moment, we were drawing inventories globally. But but what came in addition then was the talk about the sanctions in Europe and for the G7 countries, so including the US, Japan, Korea, uh, the sanctions of Russian oil. And that obviously Russia is a massive exporter of oil and of petroleum products, a total of about 7 million, to, or let's call it six and a half to keep the numbers round. And so <laughs> the question is, wow. What does that really mean to sanction them? And where can those uh if, if Europe, which was by far the largest consumer of Russian oil, if they are not allowed to buy that oil, who can else? You know, who are the countries that are gonna make up for Europe with because Europe is a, a massive in a global context single market, so to speak, that consumes or imports much more oil than today than the United States does. So <clears throat> There was a good reason for the market to get nervous because no one understood at that moment what it really means, how sanctions will pan out. And then if sanctions are in place, because everyone at that point had conviction that sanctions will be in place, how will, they, um, <coughs> how will the market reshuffle oil? And even if it reshuffles, is there the tanker capacity in place? Can we transport the oil to the new places where we need the oil? And so even Michael and I at that point were skeptical that that's going to be an easy journey, but let's never never underestimate the market and, and, and entrepreneurs out there that try to make a business. And so, so it, 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 at that point, um, um, my focus was more on, okay, we have a supply side issue potentially, but what about demand and how, does, how do consumers handle these prices? And it seemed to me back in, in in summer 2022, we were already seeing weakness, especially in Europe. Don't forget, we had a gas crisis in parallel from from not being able to import all the Russian gas. And so we had sky high, not just gas prices for industrial product, production, but we also or, or, or households or, um, you know, um, electricity purposes. But we therefore also had sky high power prices. So now the combination becomes rather painful and and, and Europe was suffering, clearly so. Measurable so. Measurably so. And um, so I was getting bearish on European uh, demand. And then if you paid attention to Asian demand, it was also not getting stronger. Uh, you know, China was going into, into the COVID lockdown again. So demand there was weak. At the same time, everything around China was weak too. And the only place where things actually worked fine was in the United States, and there, Michael uh, and I remember, uh, you know, past experiences that it's not that easy to uh, to digest the 120 oil for any of the consumers. Don't forget, we also, you know, it's not the 120 that people paid; it was actually we had sky high crack margins for refiners too. So. But, you know, what people really consume, diesel, petrol, you know, uh, gasoline, as you guys call it in the United States, was even higher. The industry, NAFTA and so on. So so prices were sky high. They probably felt more like 150 at that point. And so um, when demand struggles, it's very hard to have a bull market. And we had a price shock. Don't forget, um, uh, Jack. That's not the same as saying prices go steadily higher and everyone adapts and everyone is employed and everyone is kind of getting used to the new feeling. No, we had a shock in in a rather short period of time. So um, I I felt at that time um, um, I was actually heavily invested in an in an EMP in Peru, and so I decided to exit my position and start to uh, pay more attention to the macro overall and and the overall oil market and and take a cautious view. Perhaps a little bit early, uh, both Michael and I, but but I think justifiably so uh, back when we look back.
0: Sorry to interrupt, wanted to let you know about BlockWorks upcoming crypto event, Permissionless 2. This ultimate DeFi gathering will be taking place in Austin on the 11th to the 13th of September, 2023. It will feature the very best discussions on ZK tech, roll-ups, account abstraction, MEV, and much, much more. All the big hitters in crypto are going to be there. So if you're into crypto, you need to be there too. To get a 20% discount to a full three-day pass to Permissionless 2, click the link in the description and use code GUIDANCE20. That's GUIDANCE20. Thanks. Let's get back to the episode. And where did the Russian barrels go? Broad numbers, if the entire world consumes 100 million barrels per day. And Russia produced, again, broad numbers, 7 million barrels per day. How many actually went offline? If it was the reason that it spiked to $120, the market got scared, the Russian barrels are going to be completely gone. Is it fair to say that the Russian barrels sort of leaked out into the market, China, India? uh, What what does Russian exports look like right now?
1: If if I could just make a comment on that, this was the other, I mean, we're going to talk about supply and demand. But first, on the supply side, demand is much harder to get than supply. But you can imagine how so many people got the Russian supply situation wrong. A lot of people, there were some hyperbolic calls at the beginning of the war, you know, about, oh, we're going to have like, you know, four million barrels per day of Russian losses, et cetera. And, um, you know, Lakshmi, who I introduced to uh, to Alex, you know, she's a, she's a macro analyst I cite often, you know, and speaking to her, she's like, you know, not only am I not seeing you know, she, she's been one of the more conservative ones on, on the Russian losses, but even her conservative assumptions of about a million barrels per day of losses never materialized. And I think that's the, the, the easy thing to to talk about here. In the early part of the war, I with all the sanctions, I put out a couple of tweets and I said, you know, I don't know that uh, anything short of blockades of Russian seaborne oil will actually stop the flows. It's not like it's not like you can uh you can just basically, you know, shut off the pipelines. So Russian crudes uh never really went away uh, at the same time the whole demand story fell apart. So it was it was kind of a a perfect storm now exposed, but at the time it was kind of a you know, a contrary call, right? to, to make that because there were a lot of hype there was a lot of hyperbole about Russian uh, losses, none of which materialized.
2: And and just to add to that, um, personally, I tweeted, uh, I made some long tweets on it, and I concluded that after about let's call it let's keep it round numbers and simple, and 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 we have we can provide you the numbers in detail. But let's say Europe consumed four million of crude and products from our shore. Let's say four and a half. Um, I assumed one of those combined code and products wouldn't find a home, and uh, so pretty similar to to Lakshmi, which who is a fantastic analyst in in this space, and <clears throat> and I was wrong. Uh, and I quickly realized. So in December we had code sanctions, and I realized, wow, India is going to make up uh, together with with China and a bit of Turkey, more or less. That's it. Those three countries. Make, but but it's mainly uh, um, India going from zero Russian code to two million and China adding about half a million and then um, you know the rest found a home elsewhere and and that made up for the European code side, which was about three million and then products that Europe imported came in February. so that was still an uncertainty. so now we're in December and I'm seeing wow, code flows, zero losses Jack. And then uh, let's see how February pans out with the product side, which is a bit more complicated, right? Europe is short diesel a million, long gasoline a million. So we constantly have to trade. We always got it from Russia. Um, Europe uh, traditionally pushed the diesel engine, never got the refinery system adjusted for that, um, uh, call it policy push. And so I was more skeptical where that diesel comes from. Well, Jack, uh, in February became clear, well, the Russian... Products, the clean products, the, including the diesel and the naft and whatever they export, actually found a new home. And on top, uh, uh, Europe found uh, alternative routes. And yes, the whole transportation part got quite expensive for a while because the tanker boys made, you know, made use of the situation, uh, uh, having more ton miles out there, having to uh, reshuffle the entire uh, trade routes. But in general, it worked out. So we lost uh, practically zero barrels in fact check. For a moment, Russia exported more. Why? Because Russia had to accept discounts, now selling to an oligopoly, as we say in German. I hope that's the correct English way of saying it. Mainly China and, and India having to negotiate with more or less, call it two refiners. Obviously, there are more about them, but but they negotiated hard. They wanted a cheap deal, so they bought the the oil below 60. And um, and so um, Russia had to make up volume, right? They had to push out the volume, and so they did. So between July and December, Michael, I think it's fair to say we were bearish because of the demand side, but it wasn't quite clear how the supply side pans out. By December, I think it was clear it was a, a bear, and uh, I in, in, in I think in January I tweeted, "It's now clear it's a bear." I mean, uh, every you know every single time a piece of puzzle had to come together on the bearish or bullish side. Every time it fell to the bearish side. To be fair to the bulls, right? And um, but then you have to adjust. I mean, in January it was time to adjust. It was clear it was a bear.
0: And Alex, are you as bearish now as you were in December, or are you less bearish?
2: I'm a little more bearish
0: now. You're more bearish. OK, why is that the case?
2: Because, because now we understand more about the supply. So now we're six months further in the supply. So Russia tick, um, uh, all, all the barrels are around product and crude. Now, if we look at other countries that maybe weren't so clear uh, six months ago to me that they surprised the upside on the supply side, we have to talk about Iran. And Iran surprised extraordinarily on the, on the upside with about three to 400,000 barrels. And if you actually take it from back to January, it's more like um, 700,000 barrels. So there is a 700,000 barrel swing factor. Argentina surprised. Mexico surprised. Uh, Guyana sur- not surprised, but was very positive. The U.S. continues to deliver despite higher prices and higher services because Canada is strong. Kazakhstan delivers above its weight. So we're having supply um, surprising to the upside on many places. We have almost no surprise to the downside in the market here and there, but, but only temporarily. And then on the demand side, we start to see serious issues now. I mean, if we look at NASDAQ cracks, yeah. They are a complete disaster. Jack, that's an 8 to 9 million barrel market of the 100 or 101. What, what crack and spread? Is, sorry, what product? NAFTA. NAFTA, oh, okay. Uh, total disaster. Uh, so the, the chemical sector is destocking, um, is, is hurting both from the China uh, situation as well as the European and American situation. So there is this destocking going on so not, that NAFTA cracks collapsed, demand collapsed. Uh, so, so, so here we have a, uh, an issue, but we also see it on the diesel side, uh, Jack. We see it in the US. We see it in, in on the diesel side where we can measure um, uh, carefully, right? Con- let's let's be clear for your audience. Uh, th- the petroleum product consumption to measure is a hard thing. That's not easy. So, price is almost your best indicator. Uh, the honest, the most honest one, or, or you know, the margins and so on, cracks. But, but, but what is actually, um, in some countries, we have reliable information, although it's often with a one or two or three months lag. The U.S. is quite up to date. This is a disaster. You have a trucking crisis. That's, by the way, a good interview for you next. You yeah. have um, 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 gasoline is fine, but gasoline in the U.S. is also below its uh, pre-COVID levels. So there has been a bit of a shift, maybe in behavior, uh, stay at home more than, than than usual. So there is a bit of that. And then in Europe, it's uh, diesel is weak, clearly. And uh, I'm always talking the three regions, the US, Europe, and Asia. Uh, and gasoline is normal. And then in Asia, um, yes, China has now uh, added back what what it lost during the lockdown. But that was to be expected and it was uh, it was well compensated by the supply side. So so now we have a weak market. If you look at Jet, Jet is still well below its pre-COVID level, not because people don't fly, but because we have consolidation in the industry, and that matters too. So that adds up. And in the international flying side in China is still extremely weak, while the domestic side has clearly recovered and is now back on on, on its foot. The reason why forecasting
1: oil demand is so difficult is that a lot of these these demand metrics. Are coincident indicators at best, and backward, usually backward or uh, lagging indicators. Because by the time you see it materialize in the data, you've already gotten your head cut off if you're if you're betting on bullish prices, right? So this year, you know, one one big theme I wanted to talk about is you know even a lot of pros uh, got this year wrong because I think they're too focused myopically on various coincident and lagging indicators but if you're really trying to skate where the puck is in this market you have to consider the broader macro because if you think about you know Alex and I have been through a lot of cycles in this in in oil before and if you think about what does it take to take to bring about a market that's in super backwardation which it was uh during, you know in the uh, early days of the Russia Ukraine conflict what does it take to bring that super backwardation into contango? Well, is there some sort of a Holy grail signal? I wrote a whole thread last year about how the only sort of uh, quasi uh, predictive signal that I ever, ever come across uh, uh, is when contango first flips to backwardation. Um, and, and, and usually when that happens, spot prices a year later tend to be quite a bit higher. And my, Layman's expert explanation for that is that it is the first time an oversupplied market begins to start paying a quote convenience yield for spot for the spot commodity over forward prices, right? So, and and that's been an interesting predictive signal. But when you look at the uh, when you look at things the other way around, there is no holy grail because almost every single time uh, a an oil price crash happens it's always in the face of inelastic supply. I love saying the term, the sort of inelastic supply cuts both ways, and I think this time was no exception. Right In the the lead up to 2007, 2008, you had exactly the same thing. You had a big backwardation scenario, and then all of a sudden you had a downward demand shock, which caused a precipitous decline in the commodity price. And I think that's basically what I think a lot of people miss there. I I remember when I when we were when Alex and I were talking and we were both making contrarian calls here, there was a lot of pushback on and and namely along two fronts. There's no evidence of demand destruction in oil, especially domestically. and, And the physical market is so tight. But the problem is that if you always go by those metrics, you will have always gotten your head cut off by the time demand the demand shock shows up there's no way to forecast that by just looking at the what are largely coincident and lagging indicators so you have to look outside of the oil market and consider the fact that well maybe you know high price high oil prices alone aren't aren't the only factors that curtail oil demand destruction it's at, at as as uh, alex was alluding to right we were seeing High prices for everything, for gas, but for everything, right? If you, when you look at when you look at uh, European CPI cresting eleven percent, and our, our own US CPI cresting nine percent, and those are the reported numbers, right? So, 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 so I think that's where a lot of folks uh, got in trouble. You really need to look uh, broader. Because by the time by the time it becomes evident in the demand numbers, you, you now see what the forward curve has done. the 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 front of the forward curve is now in contango, but you know that's fifty dollars
0: later in spot. One right. So backwardation is when the current price of oil is above where the forward prices are, and contango is the opposite. Correct. And paradoxically, backwardation is actually the more bullish sig- signal, not contango. This this is a key key point I think right current forward prices
1: are terrible predictors of future spot okay but a change what I'm saying is that a change in the shape of the forward curve from contango to backwardation call that I call that the C to B flip the contango to backwardation flip I think there is predictive power there okay and and that's part of the reason why. I was very, very bullish in uh, in 2021 because that happened at the beginning of 2021. But what I'm saying is that there is no similar predictive indicator the other way around because by the time you see backwardation flip into contango, you've already gotten destroyed.
2: So, so the, the future curve in commodities—all commodities have it, most of them—is um, about logistics. So um, if you have to transport oil and you are here in Zug and you're called Glencore or Trafigura or Vito, so, so how it works is you buy the crude. And if the price in the future is higher, so contango, you actually can buy the crude now, sell it tomorrow for a higher price. And, the, and what you make in the middle is actually justify not just transport, but also storage costs. And they are not in the business of taking risk on oil prices, right? So they buy and sell immediately, and then they transport two weeks, five weeks, three months. And so they want to know their margin in between. And and, and so there is an incentive if the if the back end is, is, is much, much higher to actually store it. And that's the market's way of saying, by the way, we don't need your oil now, right? Store it somewhere. We'll get back to you in three months or in six months or 12 months. So I hope that's an easy bridge for your for, for, for your audience. So when the price is, is higher in the future, that has nothing to do with a prediction of the future curve right. saying, wow, prices in the future going to be fantastic. No, it's about logistics. It's
1: And what I was saying is that in commodity parlance, that's called a cash and carry trade, right? Because you can basically lock in um, an arbitrage. You can basically buy the commodity now uh, or produce the commodity now, store it and lock it in. Now, what I was going to say was that sometimes when the market is really really oversupplied like what happened in the in the in, in the aftermath of the 1998 um, Asian contagion the market can go into something called super contango and when where the the forward curve is super steep forward prices spot prices are much lower than 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 one year forward the reason why is because the traditional when that happens traditional sources of storage are full and so and and so Oil has to seep into secondary and tertiary sources of storage that are even more expensive. So that contango gets even steeper in a very, very bearish tape. We're not there yet, but I mean- No, that's where we're in
0: April 2020, right? Yes. Yeah. And
1: in
0: 1998 and in the aftermath of 2008. And what happened with the gas? In European natural gas, because Russian supplies were cut off, it went up something like 20 times. You know, uh, Dutch TPF prices- and Since then, it's fallen sharply. Uh, some people, you know, blamed it on the mild winter that Europe had. But why do you expect it to go very close to zero, Alex? And uh, you know, I thought, what happened? I thought there was a shortage of, uh, of European natural gas.
2: Yeah, we, we stay in a gas crisis in Europe, so, so we're not out of the woods. But commodities uh, react very. Safe. Again, I, I think the best way to explain to you is com- prices of commodities have to do work. They have to accommodate logistics, so to speak. And if there is no storage and Europe has about 100 BCM billion cubic meters at 35 and you get cubic feet um, uh, of storage, if we don't have storage, we don't have storage. Now, why are we already so full? Because of what you said, the mild winter, but also because actually everyone was pushing hard on the supply side because of that shock. As so often, commodities then (laughs) overshot and now they undershoot. Uh, because that's what just the uh, how the the supply and demands balances then balance out and and once we get into October right, then the winter starts, so we start using that gas so I should add for your audience, obviously now in the summer we almost need no gas but in the in the in the winter in Europe, you use more gas than you have flows. So you need to draw from storage, and at some point, prices go very high again. And certainly, if we then realize we don't have enough of it, let's say at the end of the winter. But that's a very weather dependent commodity, and it's a different game for you.
1: Jack, you I'm- mentioned, you mentioned uh, Mother Nature, the role of Mother Nature. And part of the reason I've, I've been saying that uh, I think the, the euro is, uh, is uh, uh, unnaturally strong, being propelled by uh, EC- the ECB's tough talk, and I'm very skeptical of that because, in part, I think that Mother Nature gave uh, gave Europe a huge uh, gift uh, last winter. In terms, I think it was like what the- Alex was it the warmest winter in 40 years or something. Uh,
2: uh, extremely warm. Let me uh, make it. Um, um, you know, give you an example. At-, at New Year's Eve here in Zurich, it was 16 degrees Celsius, unheard of. Yeah. So we had at least four weeks of extreme warmth where you almost need no gas. That's 60 degrees Fahrenheit for our
0: American listeners. So Michael, so Alex, and you were saying that demand in the rest of the world, so the world minus the US, demand was weakening, not weak, but weakening in 2022. Can we infer from that that economic growth kind of stalled out last year? given that the price of oil and economic growth are so correlated. And I might also propose that uh, when oil prices were very high, that was very negative for the consumer sentiment and consumer spending. And to the extent that we've had somewhat of uh, economic resilience in the data, you know, I mean, in October, Bloomberg uh, uh, recession calculator said it was a 99% chance we'd have a recession. And you know, by all accounts, we have not had a recession. Is that just because uh, the, the, uh, the fall in the price of oil has... Helped the, the global economy out.
1: Actually, you know what? Let me, let me, I want to pivot real quick back to the, the role of the dollar because I, I, I want yes. to say that you cannot count out the role of a strong dollar here. And part of the reason why I've, I've been uh, sounding this warning since last summer about a potential contag- Asian contagion 2.0, a la the 1998 crisis, is that it takes a long time. In 1997, in the summer of 97, you saw a first wave of dollar devaluations in Southeast Asia. It took 18 months before that metastasized into a global demand problem. And you saw com- what ha- and that's when and then you saw commodity prices fall off a cliff and go into a super contango. So what I worry about is we're on the doorstep of a second Asian contagion. Last week I wrote a mini thread. I called it you know the U.S. dollar wrecking ball. Whither art thou? Right, because if you look at the DXY, it's only at 102. So where is the dollar wrecking ball? It's like
0: fifty-five percent the euro,
1: right? Oh. But but that's exactly my point. I said the dollar wrecking ball is actually hiding in plain sight. It's being masked unnaturally uh, by an unnaturally strong euro and to a lesser extent the British pound. If you look at the dollar and what it's done in Asia, especially against the yen and the yuan, uh, it it is it is very much a wrecking ball. The 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 yen and the chinese yuan are both within spitting distance of last falls all-time uh, lows all-time lows so so and and here's the, the the big picture problem this is this is the the world the big macro uh, world as i see it right now you've got you talked about the the cpi and uh, and what oil prices mean for overall growth if you look at the cpi components right in the very early phases of this inflation, it was very much do, uh, energy uh, dominated, right? And, and so, so then the, uh, the Pandora's box, if you will, in terms of easy monetary conditions was left open way too long. That clearly leapt into the stickier components like labor and shelter. What I find interesting now is that at, even as the energy component of CPI has gone way down, overall CPI is being held up by the sticky core. I find it very interesting that all of the Western economies have, are experiencing the same sort of labor stickiness. And I think that that's a demographic issue pertaining to the post-World War II baby boom here in the West that you did not see in the East, right? That's my own uh, view. And so what, what, what you're ha- what's happening is that even as the energy component has come down, core has remained sticky. That's, that's caused all central banks around the world, especially the Fed, to, uh, to uh, at least uh, jawbone a higher for longer strategy. Now, a lot of risk assets don't seem to buy into the higher for longer, but I do. I actually believe they will, they will uh, pursue this higher for longer. And in particular, I think that the, that the Fed is going to be the last guy standing here. I don't. I I really. I've been saying for a while now. I don't think that any uh, central bank, including the ECB, will ultimately outhawk the Fed. I'm not talking about one or two hikes. I mean, it may be that right now we just saw a Fed pause, and the ECB has went ahead and hiked in June, and ECB has said that they're going to hike again in July. But I'm looking for um, ultimately. A a uh, an ECB that basically folds quicker than the Fed, especially since um, Europe was granted this uh, nature's gift of a of a warm winter. I think I think had there been a in a parallel universe where Europe did not get such a benign winter last year, there is no way that the uh, European economy would even be holding up as well as it is now, and it's already starting to fall apart, as as Alex alluded to.
0: So, so, Michael, take us back. You're talking about Asian financial crisis in 1997, and you think we could have an Asian contagion 2.0. Take us back into 1997. You recently, you know, young guy, recently entered the the hedge fund industry, and you, you know, you were witnessed firsthand what happened as these Asian currencies strongly were devalued: um, Thai baht, you know, Indonesian rupiah, Malaysian ringgit. What was the cause of of those devaluations? How did it lead to a, a slowdown in oil demand? And what are the the cause of, of the uh, uh, weak Asian currencies right now, and and why do you think that there could be a similar outcome? Well, I mean, it was it was also a a, a relatively strong dollar policy at that point,
1: right? It um, was it was a it was a, um, a un, an unsynchronized uh, sort of uh, you know central bank policy that ultimately started it, but it, you also had. This this period where the Asia the Asian tigers, right? The, you know the, the economies of like for instance Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand they had been they had gorged themselves on on um, huge amounts of dollar denominated debt, and so I guess the pushback to my theory is that okay now a lot of those economies don't have as much dollar denominated debt, and most mm-hmm. of China's debt is yuan denominated internal internal debt. So that would be the that would be a valid counterpoint right however um, the, w- when you see what's actually happening in those currencies um, it's it's very very worrisome and again going back to why this is in, in particular very very relevant to oil oil is a dollar denominated currency I mean uh, commodity. Mm-hmm. It's a commodity it's it's the most important commodity and it's and it's dollar based right and so what you have is, all things being equal, if you have a strong dollar, a dollar wrecking ball, if you will, that's going to wreck demand for everything, not just oil, but for, but, but for everything. And oil is going to be caught in that. And so when when people, this this whole notion of the US dollar wrecking ball hiding in plain sight, I think is a very important one. Because if you just look at the DXY, you're missing the you're missing the bigger picture here the dollar wrecking ball if you just look at a chart of the yuan the 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 japanese yen the indian rupee thai baht, all of these currencies have been devaluing for the last essentially over the course of the last two years pretty pretty significantly
0: and is it fair to say that all those most of those asian countries a lot of asian countries are importers of oil
1: except for indonesia but yeah, yeah 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 pretty much
0: Got it. Alex, I want to have your take on this as well as while we're talking about China. You know, I, I think I had been familiar. You put a, a tweet thread out about Chinese oil demand. And I, I think i had been familiar. I'd seen your work. But it was this thread that I said, oh, wow. Uh, who's this Alexander Stahill? I really got to pay attention to you. And it was yes, you uh, do. in a, a counter argument to China's reopening. So oil demand will spike. I was taken in by by that argument. And you know it, it logically, I guess makes sense when you when you first hear it. But you pointed out that during the Chinese lockdowns, uh, there already was a lot of refining activity, and I, I don't want to you know spoil it too much. So so I'll give you the reins. Ex- explain your logic about why you thought the Chinese recovery would not be as bullish for oil demand as so many had thought.
2: Let me do that. And and, and before I do that, I just want to to add to Michael's um, view on currencies, which are obviously extremely important and. Forgive me if I didn't mention them before, but the only thing I would add is even if the euro or the European, uh, the ECB would outtalk the the Fed, it wouldn't matter for oil demand there. Um, it's it's not currency sensitive that much what we do here in Europe when it comes to oil demand, but it's extremely currency sensitive to all the emerging uh, um, um, countries and, and obviously to Asia. So, uh, to, uh, and so exclude Japan there. So, now let me get to China. Um, so, uh, the narrative, um, we have to go to the narrative first, right? And say, what, what did people say? So, people said, wow, China's going to reopen. At, it was like November. And everyone was getting, wow, China's probably going to reopen at some point. Uh, policies were then suddenly, you know, leaked and then announced. And so in two months' time, everything is open and, and everyone is back to normal. And therefore, we consume that much more. Well, the problem with that thesis was that China was actually importing record record amounts in November. So I looked at the data, and then on top, um, uh, it had actually uh, quite a lot of storage already, both in crude and in products.
0: Just clarify, that wouldn't happen in the US. If the US had a huge lockdown policy that constrained economic activity, people are not spending money, everyone's locked at home, you wouldn't be consuming a ton of oil, importing a lot of oil. Why was it the case that China was importing a ton of oil while it had its lockdown? Just explain Uh, that for us.
2: China is -er. Mm CCP-run. The United States and, uh, and, and all the democratic countries are run by entrepreneurs that make decisions based on their working capital and what they can afford and cannot afford and how they can make money. The CCP tells uh, um, every single refiner out there, so there are the smaller ones that are privately held, they are called teapots. And then there are the state owned companies uh, that are purely run by the government, but both receive quotas and they tell them exactly what to do and not to do. So, you and I, if we run a, a refinery in China, we cannot import a single barrel unless the CCP tells us so. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a planning economy, China, and um, uh, with with a, with an element of capitalism, obviously a successful one. You know they are great entrepreneurs, but they are told what to do. So they imported a lot in November, and on top, the runs were actually already quite high, and then we the had the What do you mean, the runs? Sorry, when we talk runs, we mean the refinery runs. Yeah. So, uh, so the uh, utilization. Refinery. And. And, and and at the same time, then you produce the products, uh, diesel and whatever they are, and, and then you put them on storage. And if you looked at that situation, I felt that was high too. Now we can get back to that in a moment because some people argue they weren't and I argue they were. And, and we'll get back to some of the technicalities there. But the point there is, I said, so where can they go from here? when they reopened. So I didn't see the pitch. I didn't see the, the specialty that we suddenly had two million barrels of demand that we don't know where to to get from. And then what happened since? So now that we, we're in June, we can say exactly what happened. So what happened is in November, we peaked. Um, and now don't quote me exactly on that. But, but I would have to almost open up the, the the chart. But I think November was a little down. January was up. February was down. March was up, April was down, May was up, and now June is down again. So it was a zigzag. And each and every time the zigzagging, so from top to bottom, was about one and a half million, which is actually quite extreme. So um, it tells me that actually, yes, China cannot go much higher in imports because they they potentially actually have storage issues once they produce the products. And now that is not something I can confirm, Jack. Why is that? So I think it's important for the for your audience to know a couple of simple things about the oil sector. Certain things, Jack. Today with technology we can measure, and other things we have to calculate or guess. Crude storages. We thanks to satellite data and companies that you know organize them and reshuffle them for, for people like me and Michael. We can measure them exactly. Why? Because a crude tank, um, raw crude oil, is actually in a tank that has a floating roof usually. Now, there are some underground storages, but most of the the inventories of crude is with a floating rooftop and this round tank that you all have in front of you when you travel to the Gulf Coast. And um, those roofs, they go up and down with the amount of crude in it. The satellite data then has the angle and knows exactly whether the roof came up or down. You do that once a week. You do that for the entire globe and we have a number. So there is no doubt on my side what the number is. I know exactly. So there is no guessing there. And those were high. By the way, today they are as high for China code as they were in at the peak of the COVID crisis. So if anyone thinks that's bullish, I have to disappoint them um, and then um, we go to the product side and that's more complicated because products um, are now the, the, the things we consume and they are call it, more sensitive to the environment. So if water concentration comes in, you can um, um, you know um, cannot use the kerosene or the jet fuel. Um, in, the, in the plane anymore because then there is a risk that actually the plane comes down or the, or, or, or the, or the engine goes off um, at the wrong moment or there is icing um, in, the, in the plane and so on. So these are fixed rooftops and therefore the satellite data do not work. We cannot measure, we don't know exactly how much products there are. Now, there's a lot of in uncertainty case, there. In, uh, how much diesel, how much, blah, blah. now in the case of the United States you have an entity that reports it in the case of Europe, we have entities that report it for Japan, they report South Korea, but China doesn't. Now we have some private companies, and they do, and then we have, obviously have a lot of people that have a lot of brain and that do it for a job and sell us their product, and they do too. And there we had arguments between bulls and bears, and I'm talking now the top of the top pros that actually came back to us or to Michael and said, by the way, we see it differently. That's our data, why do you have it this way and so on? And there are some arguments to be made there on the margin. But at the end of the day, I hold my line. Um, we have plenty of products, too, in China. And we think that those data are more or less, more or less, correct. And therefore, China, China is well, well supplied. And there is no reason from here for China to, um, to, um, to, to import more oil or to produce more or have higher runs, if anything, um, at the moment, the weakness that we see coming out of China in Q2 is immense. So uh, I'm actually getting more bearish than I was in Q1, for sure, for China. What is extraordinary? Sorry. Sorry. Why is China so important in this entire context? Because again, in commodities for your audience, everything happens on the margin. So if China suddenly consumes half a million more, or imports this or that a million more, it matters. Uh, for, for oil prices. So it's important to understand China. Because you know, not many other countries suddenly can swing this this amount.
0: And the, the, the key point, uh, one of the key points, Alex, is that when China makes these refined products, sometimes it imports the crude oil to export the refined products. So that business can still be running along in the background. Correct. It's not consuming the jet fuel itself. I think you said something like jet fuel consumption in China was something like maybe you three know, to five percent of of total product demand. So it's not as, if people are flying in China, it's not going to be this huge boom.
2: I, I think that's an important point. Thank you for reminding me of that. So, so some of the bulls made made the following argument. They said China is not flying. Once they fly. The consumption of jet fuel goes up, and therefore the runs have to go up. Again, the refinery runs have to go up. That's obviously someone who doesn't really understand crude or the entire sector, right? Because what happens at the refinery? So when you put a barrel of crude in, what comes out? Let's say for 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 three barrels of crude, what comes out? Let's call it four barrels of crude comes out. Two barrels of gasoline, one barrel of of distillates, diesel kind of type, then. Other products, right? And if you look at that mix, jet fuel maybe seven, eight percent. No refiner <laughs> will will order more crude uh, because uh suddenly jet fuel um he needs more jet fuel. No. Instead, what we had is the situation they didn't use the jet fuel, so we had sky high product inventories for jet fuel, and they just started to consume down that normal jet fuel, and everything else is. It is, is as it is normally, and no refiner in the world would have higher runs because we suddenly come back flying. So that was a very poor argument by the bulls. I didn't intervene, but it's obviously someone that never went to see a refiner.
1: It's even worse than that, though, because to touch on Alex's, to build on Alex's point, right? Not only did China pull forward demand, I would argue that it's created a, a more uh, more forward supply elasticity in the market okay so so uh, you know traditional economists might quibble with the way i define you know elasticity but you know, when you generally think about you know supply elasticity right at higher prices uh, they' generally there's generally a more a larger preponderance for suppliers to supply to bring about more supply right that's where, that's why you have a upwardly sloped supply curve I would argue, though, that in the real world, that supply curve is almost kind of like a like a like a flattening, uh, almost parabola shape in in, in in the real world with this, with respect to oil, because not only has China been um, refining extra product, and they're now close to tank tops, if not already, right? They've been building up their SPR at our expense, and then you add on top of that these three OPEC plus cuts which I've labeled as premature emasculations of themselves because my view is that now they've built in a huge amount of forward slack, if you will, spare capacity in the system that even when we eventually get the demand recovery, it will be more muted because at some point, right, you're going to see if, if oil pri- – let's say that oil prices do spike uh, back to a hundred, okay. I, I think long before it gets there, you will see this. This uh, uh, you will see this dampening effect by both uh, China releasing their SPRs as well as OPEC Plus rolling back some of its cuts. So that's what I call this concept of forward uh, d- uh, supply elasticity. That's a that's a that's kind of a big problem. And so the reason why I think OPEC Plus acted prematurely is, again, they're still fighting the Fed. It's it's very interesting if you think about it, right? OPEC Plus is the central bank for oil. They have one tool, which is to limit supply. Limiting supply of oil, all things being equal, is a restrictive, economically restrictive uh, activity. The Fed, the central bank for dollars, has one tool, and that is to uh, alter uh, interest rates. And right now we're in a tightening regime that is also restrictive. So by, by OPEC trying to uh, cut, use its flex, its tool, it's actually helping the fed out in dampening demand. But it's, but also it's
0: increasing inflation.
1: <laughs> That's part of the problem with, Like it, it, that I'm trying to like articulate in my framework because, you know, the, the, if if I were if I were OPEC, I would rather let the Fed win the inflation battle um, sooner than later. Let that energy component like in in the last CPI, the last CPI was very interesting, right? For the first time, you saw the headline CPI crash to four percent, even as core stayed around five percent. That's all because of energy. So that means but, energy year over year energy deflation. That's right. That's right. That's all because of energy. But if OPEC prevents that from and, and keeps that as a short lived phenomenon, I mean, the Fed is already worried about sticky core. But if OPEC at the margins prevents the energy component from kind of doing its work, doing its work, as Alex says, right, from oil prices doing its work, then all things being equal, it prolongs the Fed's tightening stance. And so that's why I keep saying that these cuts were premature on their part, because until the, the cuts won't do really anything, in the end, I think the, the Fed wins this battle. And so you, you, in a way, they, they need to let the Fed win before kind of, you know, really stepping on the uh, accelerator. Because now, now my, my big concern now, my big black swan concern, concern is that OPEC plus is out of bullets. I don't think Saudi Arabia wants to continue subsidizing Russian free riding. And, and if, as Alex and I both think that demand could potentially fall off a cliff in the second half, e- even in the Western economies that have re- held, re- held up relatively well compared to compared to uh, Asia. Um, if that happens, and and uh oil goes uh, goes into the 50s i am i am a little concerned that opec plus has already squandered its bullets
0: but if oil demand is going to fall and as you say it might fall off a cliff isn't cutting production or cutting spare capacity or, um the right move because demand's weak so if demand's going to I know to go down, but they've it, already done
1: win. it three times that's my point they've done it three times already and so so you you you, you hearken back to before OPEC became OPEC Plus, their first ha- was this very, very gut wrenching, mutually destructive market share war between Saudi Arabia and Russia. And what happened there was, you know, in the face of COVID, Russia uh, didn't want to, uh, you know, play ball, right? And so they they didn't want to cut. And so basically, uh, Saudi Arabia said, "Okay, well, fuck you. We're gonna we're we're not gonna let you take market share." They flooded the market. And that's basically what happened, right? So they realized that ultimately, that was that they, they basically kicked each other really hard in the nuts repeatedly. And so they, that's why OPEC became OPEC plus. Well, what my worry now, though, is that OPEC plus acted prematurely three times already. And now you have a almost like a similar type of dynamic where Russia, because oil is 100% necessary for funding, continuing to fund its war machine, will probably continue to free ride off of Saudi Arabia's back. And I just wonder how much longer Saudi Arabia will be willing to do that.
2: Alex? Let me just add something which is important um, um, here in the the context of what Michael just explained. So in general, OPEC has the oil fields for your broad audience, to increase or decrease supply. Few countries in the world have that they have those amazingly prolific oil fields um, in all sorts of OPEC countries. Now, um, so we have that well where they can go up and down. Now, here is the thing. Um, If they throttle production, if they cut, as they say, production, it means they have more what we call spare capacity. Now, in the past, Certainly in the run-up of 2021 and 2022, OPEC needed to help a lot because certain countries such as the US were still behind the curve coming out of COVID and didn't produce as much as they could. Right? The Americans didn't drill as much as oh, you can go through all the countries. So OPEC was able to help more, meaning to produce more, to supply more. That meant they had more, less and less and less spare capacity right? What they have left to give to the market. And that's check when we have a bull market. Okay. So when there is no oil, no more oil to give from any of the OPEC members, then the oil price panics. Because where should the oil come from? So again, prices have to do the work, Mm. have to go as high to make sure that they bring in the the demand side.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, Please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com/research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com/sign-up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code GUIDANCE10. Thanks and let's get back to the interview. Uh, so, Alex, I, I see this is Michael's point about the elasticity. In order for the price of oil to have another oil bull market, there's three more cuts that have to be reversed, and the Chinese oil has to be all used up, and the refined products. I don't okay. see what you're saying. Okay.
2: Now, let me, let me go to that Jack exact point. So here here comes the bull side and says, by the way, OPEC soon doesn't have spare capacity. That's bullish, right? And the same bulls now say, by the way, OPEC is cutting, that's bullish. So at which point I tweet out and say, guys, you cannot have it both ways. In general, what what happens in the the world of commodities is when OPEC cuts, it's bearish or it's neutral. They can hold the physical market together, but everyone knows if we need the oil, they have it. So don't worry, price is not going to go up. And if prices go up, then because some shorts lose the nerves for a moment, they are only positioned, maybe they think, oh, who knows? Maybe oil goes up 10, I don't want to lose, I lose my job. And then they close the position, oil goes up $5. And everyone of the bull side thinks, now here is our bull market. Of course it's not, right? Then it takes three weeks, it fizzles out, and we're back at the 70. That's hap- that happened now exactly twice. And why? Because intellectually, pure and simple, it's because there is more spec capacity that's never bullish for oil. So again, there were a lot of holes in many uh, bull theses right there, and uh, and I, it was completely clear. And Michael is com- completely right. If if they have to cut again, so we come to two problems there. Number one, it's bearish because they had spare capacity, or at least it's neutral, but it's never bullish. Let's say they can keep it all together on the physical side, but you know, and you know what. The Chinese then buy less if oil prices go up because they have full full, full uh, uh, storage both on crude and on inventory. So they can always compensate if the, if the, if the Saudis go alone from here. So uh, the Saudi Arabia has to be very careful to do it alone from here. Two, we have the problem of harmony among OPEC members. And there we have conic cheaters. Iraq, for as long as I do this and look at markets, has never stick to its quota. Never, ever. Right? Either they don't deliver because they have said, or they have this or that." The moment they can, they deliver. Iran never sticks to deals. So, 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 and I don't want to call everyone out, and then I get calls and emails. But the point is, um, we have certain members that are well known to be call within the harmony of OPEC. Non-compliant. 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 Oh. Thank you so much. <laughs> you So much. I'm the politician. So so Saudi Arabia has is a, a the, the, the heavy lifter, right? Because they have by far the highest capacity; they can produce, call it, twelve million barrels a day. Um, um, so they are the big the, the big guys. Two, they are the disciplined guys, and they are the leaders. And then some countries like Kuwait and UAE are actually always, um, uh, call it, disciplined too, compliant. Um, Jack. And, um, you know, together they can do so and so much, but everyone else doesn't play ball. And now it's called OPEC plus, including Russia, which is another seven million. That doesn't work. And so in the past, uh, um, what we have seen, if you follow the the OPEC history, there are wonderful books about that. There have always been problems when Saudi Arabia tries to do it alone. Saudi so uh, knows that and and knows exactly what it's doing. It has fantastic leaders, very competent people there. But the point there is that they they called it not a cut, but they called it a um 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 Michael, what is it called in English? A, a free, not a free, but a a um a voluntary cut, right? and and and, and so. We don't know when, when, when the voluntary cut stops, uh, right? And that's probably in timing with when Russia doesn't actually reduce its volumes. So look, uh, what, from here, if demand weakens and OPEC has to do more, what I'm saying is exponentially the risk of disharmony in OPEC increases, to Michael's point before. And so from here, it's very risky to, as Michael explained, not to, not to let the market play out. What if, if oil goes to 50, Jack, believe me, US will produce less and many others start to review their plans and say, hey, guys, let's slow down at the moment. Everyone is, you know, what is interesting, Jack, when I speak to Americans or um, let's call it, Ameri- you know, oil producers from America, so from Latin or from North America, they're all bullish oil. They think, you know, this is amazing. And I uh, prepared some slides for you why I think that is right. Because the U.S. inventory, which everyone knows, everyone can read, everyone has data for for all the others. It's a little bit more difficult. They say, wow, that inventory is actually low. So it's a bull market. And that's where the bulls thesis more or less stops. Well, if it were as easy as that to understand whether oil prices go up or down, then we all be billionaires, Jack. (laughs) You know we would do a business together and become rich so the, what happened there is actually the the, the americans sold sprs
0: 300 million of which
2: and that's why strategic
0: petroleum reserve uh the u.s has it and it sold it last year president biden the biden administration sold it because prices of oil were so high yeah. and uh you you earlier said the china strategic petroleum reserve
2: they were adding which you know uh, yeah, gets a lot high. exactly and and so 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 at the moment The U.S. has actually, in a historic comparison, as we see here for 10 years, from 2023, 10 years back, uh, each line is a year. um, It's quite low because of the strategic petroleum reserve that the Americans sold. So uh, the Americans are bullish, and therefore the industry produces. And then it's a (laughs) self-fulfilling loop where the supply doesn't come down. And that's exactly what we see at the moment. Now, if we want to dig into here for a moment, I don't know if this is the moment, but we yeah. can we can look a little bit closer where America is if you go on the next slide. So that's not just the crude side, but that's including invent uh, petroleum product. So that the number there is one point six million, uh, or, or I should say one point six billion barrels of 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 crude um, oil and in, uh, product inventories that America has currently. Next slide. Next slide. Yeah so uh, so we can draw a relationship of you know how much inventory is there and what is the price of gold for for the past i think that's goes back to as far as January 20, 20, 20 2010 and you can see at the moment we're in this red circle so for some reason which should part, be it should be super it, bullish it's right it should be super bullish because the less inventory there is, the higher the prices should go. Sending a signal, hey guys, we need the supply. Well, it's more complicated. Um, at the Now moment, you got to
1: look at OECD inventories.
2: Uh, uh, first of all, we, we will look at more inventories in a moment, but let's go to the next slide for a moment. So we clearly broke a relationship. Now everyone can argue if the market is wrong, the market is wrong. Well, the market is maybe not that wrong. If we look at what America's or the United States um, oil industry looks like, I find it quite interesting to point out that if we just compare 2010, when oil prices were high above 100 and inventory was about where it is right now, US crude oil production was 5.5 million check and now it's 12.2. How about that difference? Net imports at the time in 2010 were 8.9, now 2.3, so you're almost independent. Now, what is even more interesting is that those imports, those 2.3, most of it comes actually more of it actually because it's a net import number comes actually from Canada. Some, some you know, it gets into your refinery system, and then the U.S. also exports oil. As you can see, there you were uh, by now you export four million. That is because. And refiners need the correct crude diet, so-called quality matters too for refiners. And therefore, there is a lot of trade going on to optimize the margins of your refinery system. But if we leave that complexity aside, if you look at that picture in the middle part, you see that America more or less has become a completely different crude market. Now, Jack, for your audience, and I'm sorry I, uh, that we uh, disappoint the bulls again, but the key question here is why does America need 700 million barrels of strategic petroleum reserves at this point? Now, people say, wow, the guy with the Swiss accent talking about what is you know strategically important for the United States. But look at the numbers. The point here is that America is a completely different, very independent, extremely well organized oil market today. That needs a bit of trade to optimize the margins of refinery. And don't get me wrong, we can make an example here how important that is. We understand that well. So we're not underestimating it. But what I'm saying is from a strategic, purely strategic perspective, not from a technical perspective and not from a perspective of, of your oil uh, storages for the strategic petroleum reserves need the oil or not, the America doesn't probably need the amount of SPRs. I I don't know enough. I would never
0: presume to uh, uh, disagree with you, but just to push back, you know, strategic petroleum reserve is at the lowest level since what 1985. I mean, you can tell me if the price of oil goes to 30 bucks, wouldn't you imagine that the energy department would be buying hand over fist to get a good deal? They shorted oil at 100 and and they
2: bought it at 30. And maybe they do, and that would be very smart, isn't it? So they sold at 90 or 110, and they buy back at 13. So I would say you guys are good businessmen, and even at the government (laughs) level. But, uh, what could happen is that you actually buy it back much later at a higher price than you sold it for. I don't know, Jack, but that's. The, the, I'm not trying to make an argument about uh, your energy department. What I'm trying to say is you have a different market, Jack, in the United States, and that number that was so for for many years for good reasons, for strategic reasons, today shouldn't be. And I think at some point, your Congress, will look at exactly that and will say maybe, you know what? why do we buy back and that was another bullish argument of the bulls for much too long now what happens do you think before elections in the united states anyone will buy back petroleum strategic petroleum reserves that you may not even need it's not going to happen
1: let me if, if if i could push back a little bit this is a rare point of uh slight disagreement alex and i have um so on on the
2: on the and issue- to prepare, it's a provocative one. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just looking at it like an analyst. Mm-hmm.
1: From the uh, I don't disagree that uh, in the near term, the uh, it, it looks like we are well. We're quite independent. Where I would push back, though, is that the it's, it's two things. Right. Two. Uh, one is that we we despite us being despite the US being a large net exporter, it's it's interesting because if you look at the uh, the amount of uh imports that we've had before and after the repeal of the export ban in 2015 it's largely been constant and that is because our refiners are tooled to to process heavier grades and that, and we've been net exporting all the light sweet from shale so i think that our the america's energy independence isn't quite as Rock solid as just looking at the pure net export number, and I would argue that the uh, and ultimately the the other uh, pushback I would say is that longer term, it's true that since 2013, the Permian Basin alone has essentially added close to like five million barrels per day of incremental production. But um, you know the Permian Basin is really the only basin at this point in U.S. shale that is still growing, albeit at a slower pace. Every other major basin has gone into decline. So I don't think that America's uh, energy independence, both from a mixed standpoint and also from an absolute standpoint, is going to last. So I would argue that the, the reason why it is a strategic petroleum reserve is is for a geopolitical catastrophe or some something in the future. So I, I personally think that from a policy standpoint, from a geopolitical standpoint, it's a mistake to, to keep gutting it. But I, I don't I don't um disagree that politically uh I, I don't really see the administration uh filling this up anytime uh soon. Are
0: they still getting it? I thought that they, they were my, adding it back just a They're, little bit.
1: I mean, a just a little bit. Not
2: a Jack, just for your audience, so in case there are some midstream guys from the refiners listening to this, and they think, what are these guys talking about? So crude, we understand crude quality matters, right? So if you have a, you know, crude is measured in API, what the industry calls API. Let's say you have a 30 API type oil in your hand as a refiner. And you can produce, let's say, 30% with that gas oil and some 20% distillates. Um, If you now have a 45 API that comes out of the Permian, you now go down to 10 and 10. So crude quality matters enormously for your refinery system. But let me again repeat what I said. I was making a strategic point, number one. Number two, if you have to trade. You can trade. Number three, you have the best, most powerful, by far, Navy in the world, and you can trade those barrels at any point in time. A, you get the right uh, barrels from Canada, where, where there is no risk, zero, right? You're not going to go to war with Canada, I assume. And you have the pipes going directly. In. Well, we did, we, we did shut down Keystone, though. So. And, 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 and then number two, you have the barrels uh, that you can get trade with, if you want, purely with Latin America, Venezuela, Guayana now in the future is going to deliver you exactly the, the crude quality you guys need. You have Brazil and you have um, Ecuador and even Peru yeah. now that going to help you in case your Navy doesn't want to leave the Americas. Okay. And so in theory, guys, while you still import from Iraq, while you import from, from uh, Saudi Arabia, you don't need them. And just to be clear, I didn't say, if you go back to my slide, I didn't say you're not going to need them for the next 50 years. I made very clear in my slide, if you go back, that this is temporary. Just one more thing. You see see there... um, um, where do I say, or 2023 or anytime soon, I say in the, uh, below the two different markets, the, the, the red thing where, where I describe it. So I think, I, I'm just saying, it's not imminent for you guys. It cannot be a bull argument. It's not something you need yeah. to solve urgently and you don't have a strategic crisis and you don't need to find a friend in the Middle East and you don't have it. This is not the 1970s and you guys don't have an oil crisis.
0: It's entirely dependent on what the government does, and they're going to do what you do. Like, you can't say, oh, the Federal Reserve should do this. Should, if I was running the Federal Reserve, I would do this. Like, that's, those type of arguments, uh, you know, typically lose people money more frequently than they, they make people money. So I want to figure out, you know, as we a close, uh, uh, guys, who's more bearish? Both of you are bearish. Both of you have been bearish, and you've been right. But who's more bearish? Who has a price target that's lower? How low do you think it's going to go? Uh, is there such thing as a floor? I mean, a lot of people said, "Oh, you know, I'm not bullish on crude, but I think the floor is 70 bucks." Well, it's 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 through that. So, uh, Michael, how about we start with you? I mean, how low do you think oil has go? I mean, from from your Substack, Cowboy Musics, I think you you said some quote like, uh, "You're extremely concerned about the short term, six to 12 month setup for oil." So, how low of a price on, let's say, WTI is is extremely concerned? Uh, where do you think a floor is? And then we'll find out if Alex has a uh, floor that's even lower than yours.
1: Look, I could I could see oil uh, having a fifty handle uh, before this cycle is done. And if I may, I think I, the way I would summarize my my whole I was think while you guys were talking, I was thinking how how do I summarize my my closing arguments? And I and I thought I would give you like a little hand hand puppetry. Okay, so this is this is where we were. This is this is the supply curve. This is the demand curve. Right. This is where we were uh, at the end, uh, by middle of 22, we had a relatively inelastic supply curve, right? And what I was concerned about is a strong dollar and high prices for everything would create this situation, right, a demand shift down. And that's basically what's happened. Now, then if you think about what OPEC has done, it it cuts supply. So it shifts the, the supply curve back this way. But every time that it cuts, I would argue that the, the supply curve tilts a little bit. It becomes a little bit more elastic. And that, that's also, that's it, it also is the case uh, that S, uh, China has been building its SPR and also adds to that elasticity. So essentially, you now have a situation where OPEC has cut one, two, three, and each time the forward curve has become a little bit more elastic, right? And so, so, it, so demand has come down the bullish argument is that oh by the time um you know with all the stimulus happening and china reopening blah 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 demand is going to shift back up well now you have a more arguably a more elastic supply curve so the the demand shift up is going to produce a more muted price rally the other problem in the longer term that i see that i wrote in a thread that i where i talked about how the uh, what I call the supply demand singularity um, gets that corridor of prob that corridor of viability gets pushed out is time, right? Be- because we have this forward supply elasticity, it gives emerging markets like China and India time to substitute away from oil also. So the longer this su- forward supply elasticity happens, uh, the, the, the more demand also becomes, uh, longer term demand also becomes more elastic. So, so these are all sort of frameworks that that I, that I use that are, that, that I help, help me think about, you know, what the overall, uh, trajectory is going to be. I always like to say I'd rather be generally accurate than precisely wrong. So, you know, I'm, it's, it's always hard to, Oil is not a commodity that you can price with a DCF model, right? Yeah. But, but, um, as <sighs> a just, just my, my gut tells me, I mean, having gone through many past credit crises, I would be shocked that number one, that we don't have a hard landing down the road. And, and, and if that is true, um, it'll, it, th- this will be the first. Hard landing that I've ever seen with oil prices not going substantially lower than here.
0: <laughs> so, Got it. So you're you're bearish. You're not super bearish though. I uh, 50. You know, is still there. Still are some companies that are profitable with with 50.
1: I worry uh, though. I worry because I, I it's too hard to know because my black swan situation is one where if OPEC plus if that if that relationship fractures then you go much lower than 50, right? Then you go much lower than 50.
0: Because you have a full-out price war. Got it. So, Alex, uh, Michael's, uh he thinks the price of oil could go 50. Are you more bearish
2: than he is? No. Um, I, I agree mostly with, with what Michael's saying, and I try to, to, to add a few components here. Um, first of all, I think, there, um, so we go into driving season, but we are in it right now. And I think the market will look through it. So I don't see that that the market needs to go $10 higher from here. There is too much weakness by now, uh, uh, globally synchronized. So the market will look through it, even if we draw. And I expect that we are going to have three months of draws of inventories. The market will look through it and, and we stay more or less where we are right now. And then I think comes the difficult part, Q4, Q1 at some point, I think we can see the 50 handle. Absolutely possible. I would argue a little bit more about the market overall, not to to do with the oil market. If we, Jack, have less liquidity, and I always listen to your liquidity interviews with with your guests, if we have suddenly what I call a correlation one event in market and max positioning on the bearish side, I think that's when we're going to see these situations where oil can easily go to 55, why not? If we don't have that, if we don't have limit down days, then maybe it's going to become a more smooth ride. However, as Michael described, I think it's going to become tricky to get out of it and back into what I call a corridor of bullishness. And I think that will, will, will probably uh, test the patience of the of the bulls. Don't forget I think in the industry, there are still a lot of people uh, slightly or, or rather bullish that may at some point also go into capitulation. And I don't know how big these players are. I know some names that I'm not going to mention. And if they close positions, that could, could help the market too. Uh, so thank you. So
0: Alex, pe- people can find you on Twitter at uh, BurgRobinH. And of course, uh, Michael, they can find you at urban cowboy on Twitter and uh, your Substack Cowboy Musings. Michael, going to give you the final word. Can you kind of just summarize your view about this, uh, you know, Chinese yuan doom loop? I mean, what what happens to China? It's, it seems like the reset, the Chinese recession was last year, so it's emerging from the slowdown now.
1: Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I th- I, I, it goes back to my comment earlier about how how different the COVID response is, and I think the big mistake, honestly, that the uh, oil bulls got right now in forecasting this China reopening is. Imagine what the shape of the U.S. consumer would be like if we had one extra year, year and a half of lockdown without any of the fiscal stimulus, and then multiply that by four in terms of just pure population size. Okay, and that's what you have with the China reopening. Like what the, the, these these uh, PBOC measures that we're seeing; these are very very uh, small measures and um, I think China is really walking the tightrope, and you know you last night actually p b o c intervened to uh slightly uh strengthen the yuan. They were selling dollars. I think they're just very, very concerned about preventing a disorderly devaluation. I think if china had a, a fully open capital account, you would see double digit yuan personally so so um for me, you asked about how how one plays this look, I've been very vocal i've I have a longer-term bullish uh, view on oil through this self-liquidating oil private equity that I'd never trade. I'm constantly in communication with my management team. and Over the last nine months or so, I would say that I've been very, very vocal about uh, having them get more hedged up, uh, and they have been. Um, I personally don't have any uh, publicly traded oil positions. But I've also been short the yuan as my as my way of, my oblique way of hedging some of my oil exposure, because I do I do believe in this self-reinforcing uh, doom loop uh, uh, thesis. So that's how that's how I'm playing it. And, you know, look, the, the, the nice thing about both what, what Alex and I uh, do is that we don't have to play uh, in this sector when the stars don't line up. And, you know, uh, you know, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about a, about a black swan risk, but am I going to go out, out, you know, in terms of actually being short oil? Um, I, I don't love that trade right here either, to be honest with you, because, you know, first of all, spot is too, too volatile. So if I were to short oil, I would probably pick a point like D24, D24 is trading at, 60, already a 65 handle, it's still a slight backwardation. It's not a, you know, the stars don't line up. And and there is, even though I think OPEC may have squandered its bullets, you still have this jawbone risk of, you know, uh, OPEC, you know, looking to, you know, punish speculators every once in a while. So I just don't need to complicate my life. What I do feel more conviction in is that the yuan has to continue to devalue. And I do think that 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 I guess uh, correlation between dollar yuan and n- inverse correlation between uh, dollar yuan and oil uh, gives me a chicken way to be short oil without without the OPEC risk.
0: That's very interesting, gentlemen. Uh, thank you so much for for coming on, sharing your insights. Uh, glad to to meet you, Alex. Finally, and uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.